Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. The most unexpected part of my grieving process in losing the ability to play the violin was was acknowledging that I hadn't just lost the ability to play an instrument, I'd lost myself in the process. You know, I felt like I was missing a huge piece of my heart. <laughs> I didn't know where it had gone, and I, I really struggled to figure out who I was and, and who I could be without the violin. And I'm sure a lot of people listening can resonate, you know, might not have been an instrument, but we all experience loss in our lives. That's Maya Shanker. In her teens, she was a violinist of such promise that the great Itzhak Perlman took her on as a student. But her world came crashing down when an injury ended her career, just as it was beginning. Remarkably, she turned that loss into a Ph.D. in neuroscience, a stint in the White House, and creating and hosting a popular podcast about others who were navigating drastic changes in their lives. This is already a treat to be talking with you. Your life has taken so many changes, and you've navigated them so brilliantly. It's it's really amazing. You started out obsessed with the violin, right? Well, when did that start? Yeah, I did. Well, that's so kind of you to say, Alan, and it's, it's such a delight for me to be in conversation with you today. Um, yeah, when I was six years old, uh, my, my love of the violin emerged. So I'm the youngest of four kids, and my mom uh, one day went up to our attic, our family attic, and brought down my grandmother's violin that she had brought with her from India when she immigrated to this country with my dad. I had a really close emotional connection with my grandmother. And I do wonder whether knowing that she had played when she was a young kid in the Indian classical style uh, was part of it. But I um, I gravitated towards the, the instrument. And while, I mean, this is wild to think back on, but even at age six, while my parents had to nudge me to do all sorts of things, they so rarely had to tell me to practice. I mean, I was like running home from the bus stop after school and it really, it really was a true passion for me. That's amazing. And you got real proficiency, even though you you weren't, am I right about this? You weren't learning to read music? Because I learned um, just by imitating. I never played scales and I never had to practice etudes or any of the 
boring uh, grind stuff. And instead, I was just playing fun pieces all the time and just imitating. Um, so it definitely deepened my love of music quickly. Um, so so fast forward to age nine. One day we were passing by Juilliard because um, I, I was there for the weekend with my mom. I had my violin with me for another audition. And she knew this was my dream school. So she said, hey, Maya, let's go over to Juilliard. You could just see it and like, you know, get inspired, imagining your idols. We go on by and, and there I am imagining Yo-Yo Ma, you know, coming in and out. And all of a sudden my mom looks at me and says, hey, why don't we just go in? And I was like, what do you mean just go in? And she said, let's just see what happens. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen? And Ellen, I was nine. I had a creative memory. I had a lot of images of the worst things that could happen in just waltzing into a school like this unannounced. But uh, there was some fearlessness in me. And I said, okay, mom, sure, let's do it. And we go into the building and um, my mom struck up a conversation with a fellow student and her mom. And she said, uh, hey, any chance you can introduce my daughter to your teacher when your lesson's over? <laughs> and, you know, kindness to strangers, Alan, like they said yes. They had no obligation to say yes. And they just said yes. And so within an hour, I was auditioning for this teacher on the spot. He basically told me, you're not good enough right now. He had what I would call muted enthusiasm. Um, but he, <laughs> thought, he thought that I was like, excited to learn. And so he took me on as a um, summer student. So that summer I went to a little a boot camp of his. And for those five weeks, he really skilled me up. And without that moment of serendipity, without my mom's fearlessness, there's no way that I would have had the necessary training to pass the Juilliard audition that fall, which I, which I eventually did. Which you did. And then Itzhak Perlman came to know about your work and offered to teach you privately. Is that right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Memory lane. Um, yeah. When I was 13, um, I, a meeting was set up where I would just play for Perlman once and we just had a lovely time. I mean, he was, um, his, his infectious, there's an infectiousness, um, around his love for the instrument. I mean, it's just palpable. And so as a 13 year old, I could feel that in the room. Like this is a person who has found what he loves to do. And I really fed off of that energy. But of course I assume this is a one-time experience, right? So I left the room and I was like, okay, you know, check, met Perlman. This is awesome. You know, bucket list. And then afterwards, uh, we find out that he wanted to take me on as a private student. And I nearly fell off my chair. Like when I, I, I could not believe that that was going to be in the cards for me. Then just when I was, what I believe was like peaking in terms of growth and opportunity, I had my quote, slight change of plans, right? Where one morning I was um, at the Perlman summer program. I was playing a very technically challenging piece by Paganini and I overstretched my finger on a single note and I heard this popping sound. Alan, and it was so such a scary sound, and it was like not a string that had popped. It was it was a tendon in my t in my hand oh. that had torn, and um, you know, I think because I, I was probably fifteen at the time, um, I entered into a state of denial. I was fighting through pain. Um, I you know was just taking lots of ibuprofen, doing you know cortisone shots, like you name it. And so, um, yeah, it was just really. It was really, it was a tough period. And then finally, doctors told me that I could never play again. So this was an enormous change you were facing because you, you looked on the violin as an indication of who you were, I think, right? It was your identity. Yeah, it's so well said. I think 
the most unexpected part of my grieving process in losing the ability to play the violin was was acknowledging that I hadn't just lost the ability to play an instrument. I lost myself in the process. I mean, huh. it was, it was, I think only sometimes when we lose the ability to do something that we love, do we realize the significance it played in our lives in terms of forming our sense of self. And that's what happened with the violin. Suddenly it was gone. And, you know, I felt like I was missing a huge piece of my heart. <laughs> I didn't know where it had gone. And I, I really struggled to figure out who I was and, and who I could be without the violin. And I'm sure a lot of people listening can resonate, you know, might not have been an instrument, but we all experience loss in our lives. And we all go through enormous changes. Enormous change. When MASH stopped for me, and I was instrumental in ending it, Yeah. I, it was like stepping off a speeding train because I didn't have the same place to go every day to do what I knew how to do. So before we get to me, because, you know, I'm not going to forego an opportunity to ask Alan what his experience is like, how did you how did you adjust to that transition? I mean, what was it like post-MASH? Well, I had always been, I had always considered myself a writer as well as an actor. Hmm. So I concentrated more on writing just to get out of the slump. And then I would act in the movies that I wrote. Hmm. So I got back in, you know, back on the speeding train. I, I'd never thought about the train analogy, but it's so apt. And I think it perfectly describes my experience. Now that I think back to my emotional state, it's like you're racing and racing and racing. You're speeding along. You almost don't even have time to reflect on all that's happening around you because you're so um, singularly focused on this goal. And every day has meaning and every day has purpose. And um, it's really a privilege to be on the train. And because you've been speeding along, you haven't had time to develop other interests that you can now focus on. That's exactly right. So in cognitive science, which is my field of study, this is known as identity foreclosure. So this happens to a lot of people when, especially in in their childhood and adolescence, but it can persist well into adulthood, where we very quickly narrow in on an identity. But what happens is we foreclose on all these other potential identities that we could potentially occupy, right? And um, this can be accompanied by a lot of pain when you lose the thing that defined your identity. And I definitely experienced that with the violin, right? I had foreclosed on just about everything else. So how did you unforeclose? <laughs> yeah. No, you... um, so what I, the, the, the greatest lesson that I learned from this experience with change, and I think it's guided me through many additional transitions over the course of my adult life, was to change fundamentally what I anchored my identity to. Um, so I know I noticed you mentioned, you know, I saw myself as a writer in addition to an actor, right? And I recently engaged in a shift of mindset where I started to anchor my identity to why I do the things I do. And I found that to be a much more stable, reliable sense of self, because even when circumstances change and even when the what is no longer uh, an off on offer to us, we can still cling on to that why in other forms. So to be more specific with the violin, I realized that when you strip away the superficial features of the instrument and what it was like to actually play it, at the heart of my love for music was the ability to connect emotionally with other people. Mm. I mean, I just love human connection. So I found this intoxicating as a kid. You know, you play alongside your chamber, fellow chamber musicians, you go on a stage and you're in front of a room of strangers, but you're all sharing in this incredible emotional experience together with the potential to feel something new as a result of the notes you're producing. And when I realized, ah, okay, 
at the heart of my love for music is a love of human connection. Then what I was able to do is say, okay, well, music's no longer available to me as an option. How else can I find my love of human connection? And in my adult life, I found that through a slight change of plans, my podcast, where I get, you know, you you have this this joy as well. I get to interview people from all over the world about their life stories and experiences. And um, I feel that deep emotional connection through the show that I once had through music. This is so funny because this is the path I've taken. Oh, really? It's not only similar, it's almost identical. Oh my gosh, I should have called you for advice before I went through all that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I have the oldest Center for Communicating Science, which is an attempt to help scientists connect with the audience they're trying to communicate with. And this podcast that we're on is an extension of that and it supports it, but it also tries to do the same thing just as your podcast does. And your podcast was named by Apple the best podcast of 2021. So you're you're really cooking. <laughs> well, I think it's because it was born of, you know, just this genuine love. Um, and so, so what I would, what I would, the advice that I would give to people listening who are going through a change, who feel in some way they foreclosed on other identities, who are trying to figure out what comes next is to ask yourself, what are the underlying features of the thing I used to do that I loved so much? And is it possible for me to find that elsewhere? When you got interested in the brain, how did that fit into what you just described? Did you understand yet that connecting with other people was the way to do it? I did not. So I was just letting, you know, my passions guide me at that time. What happened is uh, the summer before college, I was at home with my my parents in Connecticut. I remember I was supposed to be in China touring with my classmates. So I was imagining this counterfactual world that was far more exciting than what I was up to. So I was kind of down in the dumps. And um, I stumbled upon a book by Steven Pinker, who I know you've, you've talked to on the show. The book was called The Language Instinct. And it detailed our marvelous ability as humans to produce and comprehend language and the very sophisticated cognitive machinery that's operating behind the scenes that's giving rise to this ability. And the the best word I can use to describe um, that experience was awe, because I had totally taken for granted this ability within myself and within others. And I had never once thought about just how impressive the brain has to be in order to take in all these random inputs in childhood and then suddenly you're fluent in a language, right? And so um, it was then that I realized um, I, I love this idea of exploring the mind, right? Understanding how it is that we are the way we are and why it is we are the way we are as human beings, how it is that we relate to one another. I mean, over the course of my career as a cognitive scientist, I've studied decision-making, how we develop our attitudes and beliefs about the world, how we emotionally connect with other people. And I feel like that's fed this deep intellectual curiosity I have about our own psychology, right? And, and what it is that brings us meaning and joy and purpose on this earth. So you were studying before you understood in your own mind what you had to do to change successfully. You were already figuring out how the brain worked in order to do that. Absolutely. But I sense that as you pursued your academic career, you weren't really fulfilling the need you had to connect with other people, 
you were you were watching people in an MRI for five hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so interesting because on the one hand, I was exploring really fascinating questions um, when it came to you know research and reading and and learning about the the science of the mind. But on the other hand, the daily tedium of lab work, I, mean, I remember in my postdoc, I was working in a cognitive neuroscience lab, was a terrible fit for my personality. Because again, I'm in this windowless basement, um, scanning people's brains, having no real communication with the people themselves other than having them sign off on this waiver and, you know, tell me their birth date and whatever, and then set them up in the in the MRI machine. And I... I was feeling unfulfilled and, but also very anxious because I, at this point, spent years and years and years, right? Like studied CogSign undergrad, got my PhD, now was pursuing a postdoc. I had no idea whether there was an alternative for me with with the background that I had um, in the world as a cognitive scientist outside of academia. And so that is when um, I, I called my beloved advisor from undergrad. She's known me since I was 17, Laurie Santos. And I know he's also been on the show. Very happily. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Happiness expert. So Laurie um, was so helpful to me in that moment because I remember I called her up and I was like, hey, Laurie, I know this. Um, you've been such a wonderful mentor to me, but this whole academic thing that you've been coaching me on, like, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> do I become a general management consultant, like, what can I do with this degree? And she's like, okay, okay, before you start interviewing with with consulting firms, um, you know, you need to give me a little bit of hope here, Maya, that like, maybe I could keep you a little bit on track uh, within this field. And so she told me about this really incredible work that was happening in the Obama administration that was leveraging insights from behavioral science and cognitive science and cognitive psychology to help improve people's lives. So in this very particular uh, story she was sharing, the government was offering a free or reduced price lunch to low-income students. And despite the fact that it was being offered to millions of kids, millions of kids were still going hungry every single day at school uh, because their parents hadn't signed up for the benefit. And when they did a behavioral audit of why it was that this was happening, they realized that the barriers were twofold. One, it was an extremely burdensome, complex process. It was, it was a lot of burden we were putting on people to just enroll their kids in the program. So that needed to be streamlined. And then the second uh, is that there was a stigma associated with signing up kids for the program. And so, you know, later on when I was at the White House, I talked to a principal who said, you know, parents are very prideful about working hard and not wanting their kids to rely on the government um, for for assistance. And so they leveraged a very elegant insight from, from behavioral science. And what they did is they leveraged the power of what's called the default option. So traditionally, you have to take affirmative steps to enroll your kid in the program, it was, as we just discussed, right? You have to fill out the burdensome form, you have to overcome stigma. Instead, what they did is they used existing administrative data that they already had collected on these kids, and they automatically enrolled all eligible kids into the program so that that was the new default. They were all enrolled. So now parents only need to take an active step if they want to actively unenroll their kids from the program. So essentially, they changed the school lunch program from an opt-in program to an opt-out program. And as a result of this change in the design of the program, 12 and a half million more kids were now eating lunch at school every day. So that must have inspired you to think, how could I contribute what I know how to do to an administration that does this kind of thing? 
But here you were, what were you, a postdoc at this point? Yes, I was a postdoc, exactly. So you so you were a postdoc and the White House is the White House. <laughs> yes. How do you connect with the White House and get yourself involved in that program? Yeah, so this was a light bulb moment where I realized that it might be possible to be a practitioner of my field, which I hadn't seen modeled very much at that point. Um, I was so excited by this, and I, I told Laurie, I was like, okay, this is great. I love that kind of work, but there's no job that I can apply for to do this. And so she generously connected me with a former Obama administration official, Cass Sunstein. Um, I sent him a cold email, basically, and was like, hey, I'm a student of Laurie's. I have no public policy experience, but I'm you know, enthusiastic, and I'm really interested in applying what I've learned from my academic time uh, to improvements in, in policy. And, you know, would you be so kind as to introduce me to anyone who's relevant to this? And it turns out it was the science and technology office that was going to be the most fitting. This is like you standing outside of Juilliard. I mean, why don't we just go in? That student, Nicole, and her mom who said yes, Cass so generously wrote back to me and said, Maya, this sounds so excited, exciting. I would love to connect you with the president's science advisor. And within just a few days, I was interviewing with the White House. I was pitching them on the idea of creating a new position for someone with my background and ideally pitching them on hiring me for the role if they chose to create it. <laughs> so you created a job. For myself, yeah. And then a few months later, uh, I started my position at the White House in at the beginning of Obama's second term. And I built out a a dedicated team of scientists, of behavioral scientists, who the, the mandate was for us to systematically apply wisdom about the science of human behavior to the design of policies and programs so that we could see the benefits that I'd seen with that school lunch program story. When we come back from our break, Maya Shanker tells me how the job she created for herself in the Obama White House helped kids enroll in college. Then, during the pandemic, how she invented a podcast called A Slight Change of Plans, based on her own navigation of change. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Maya Shanker. I had heard her say in an interview that while in the White House, she helped solve a problem mysteriously called summer melt. So this is research that um, 
my my friend Ben Castleman leads, and he identified this phenomenon known as summer melt, where a non-trivial percent of students who intend to go to college fail to actually enroll in the fall. You know, they've been accepted to the college, but over the summer, there are requirements of them, like they have to fill out pre-enrollment forms or sign up for their course, their courses. And they don't have a lot of access to professional help or mentorship over the summer. And so they don't complete um, these requirements. And as a result, they, quote, summer melt um, and they don't attend college in the fall. And this is, again, so tragic because they put in all of the hard work to actually apply to college and to actually get in. Hmm. And we partnered with Ben and found that sending low-income students uh, just eight text messages over the course of the summer, simple personalized reminders saying, hey, don't forget to, you know, fill out this enrollment form. Don't forget to attend your orientation program that's going on um, in, you know, a few days, led to a 10% increase in college enrollment in the fall, mm-hmm. which just is amazing. Just a few text reminders. Yeah. Te- just a few. And it's, you know, I send eight text messages within like 30 femtoseconds these days. I mean, we're just yeah. always texting about. And so it was a powerful reminder that these small nudges can have a really outsized impact on behavior and can help close what's called in, in psychology, the intention action gap. So we have this intention to do something, but because we're human and, you know, we might be procrastinating or we might not have access to all the resources we need, or maybe we're confused by the choices in front of us, um, we're fallible. And that means that having these little nudges and, and help can really can help us during these critical times. So having created a department for yourself at the White House, the next thing I'm aware of that you did was start your podcast, which is wonderfully successful. And you have very accomplished people very often who have had to face enormous changes. Have you had many or any guests on your show who've had the really remarkable changes you've had to face? Yeah, I mean... A slight, just the origin story really quickly, this, a slight change of plans um, was an idea that I I built out during the pandemic. So this was during 2020 and and early 2021, and I never had a dream or goal of starting a podcast, Um, but a confluence of factors um, led me there. So obviously I was overwhelmed by the rapid pace of change that was happening around um, me and in in the world more broadly because of, you know, COVID and racial injustice upheaval. Um, I was also disoriented because my husband and I were navigating um, unexpected change in in our our lives. So we had, in the beginning of of COVID, um, lost a baby to a miscarriage with our our surrogate. And we're absolutely grief-stricken. I mean, I, I... felt so unprepared for that experience, even though I had had these formative experiences with change before. I felt really unprepared. And I just remember feeling, man, all of this feels so novel and unprecedented, and I'm not prepared for this moment. And then I put my my cognitive science hat on and thought to myself, okay, maybe you can think about this differently. Um, sure, the, the specifics of what 2020 is throwing your way are in fact novel. Um, But as humans, as a human, you've done this change rodeo so many times before. And every other human, by virtue of existing on this planet, has successfully navigated change in some way or another. Maybe there's the possibility to connect with others who have gone through 
wild change and to learn from them, right? To tap into this treasure trove of wisdom that every person has inside of them about how it is that they've navigated change in their lives. Maybe sometimes it wasn't ideal, sometimes it was, but either way, there's learning to be had. And so that's what gave birth to a slight change of plans. I wanted the opportunity to interview people from all over the world about their unexpected change, their change of plans, um, how they navigated things like uncertainty and loss of identity and all the other things that can make change very scary. And um, I also wanted the ability to bring in my perspective as a scientist, as a cognitive scientist, Mm. to see whether we could marry science and storytelling to help give us all strategies for better navigating the unexpected. And what's been... I mean, this is the love of my life, this show. I've just, I mean, my husband too, but I, 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 just, <laughs> I just, I love this show so much. It is, is truly coming from a place of genuine curiosity and interest. And I feel so much wiser, you know, two years into making the show. I've learned so much from my guests. Um, and what's been so heartening about making the show is that Despite the diversity of experiences um, that we hear from, we hear from people who have lost a significant other. We hear from people who have gotten an unexpected stage four cancer diagnosis in their 30s. We hear from someone who is, you know, working on sobriety. We hear from someone who is betrayed in their marriage. We hear from someone who um, had children and it didn't go at all according to plan based on what she was expecting. I mean, just across the board. And despite their circumstances being so different, there's a universality in their change experiences. And that unlocked this really profound insight. And it was very encouraging for me because what it taught me is that we can all learn from other people's change stories, even if they don't look like our own. And so I think instinctively before starting the show, I would have thought, okay, if I've lost a friend, then the people I'm going to find the most insight from are other people who have lost their friends. Mm. I would have gone to the bookstore and gone to the brief section, and that's where I would have looked. And what I found from the outpouring of listener responses is that they, you know, the recent divorcee actually is finding the most in common with a person who had a had an illness or a disease or cancer diagnosis, right? There's mm. a feeling of betrayal in both those uh, scenarios, and it's actually that psychological dimension that they bond over. And so... Sorry, I can talk about... I'm sorry, I'm going on and on about a slight change of plans. I can talk about it all day long. Um, but what I love is that it's really topic neutral, right? Like people will see all of these different change experiences, but there's something to learn that's really universal in all of them, irrespective of your experiences. A common theme, I think, between you and your guests and you and the experiences in your life is this desire and ability to connect with other people. Is that something that you just were born with, do you think? I mean, as we talk, you're very expressive. Your, your face lights up, your eyes light up. You're really getting inside my head with what you're thinking, which means you're thinking about what I'm thinking, too. How did that develop in you? Did you ever give any thought to that? Yeah, I think... I think this is probably something that was just a natural interest for me. So when people ask about my becoming a cognitive scientist, I I say, I think it was my natural passion for humans that led me to 
to that field versus mm. the other way around. I mean, obviously, when you study something in depth, you cultivate more of an interest. But I think it was just, I mean, if you look at like my childhood photos, right, I'm my happiest when I'm around people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm clinging to my family members in every photo. I'm like super affectionate. I was hugging people in every scene. And that was always when you saw me at my happiest. So I think from an early age, my parents could probably have detected. And that's not to say I don't have some introverted qualities as well. It's just that... Um, I, I, I think the reason why, actually, now that you mentioned, I think the reason why I love making a slight change of plan so much is that this is how I would have wanted to spend my free time regardless. Like, mm. I'll be the one at the dinner party who finds out that, like, this person two seats to my left has this fascinating life story. And I, like, move over and I'm like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I, want to hear, I want to hear everything that there is to know about what you went through. Yeah. And so, yeah, delightful dinner party guest, right? You got to be careful inviting me to, 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 to these dinners. But that, that curiosity is unrelenting. And I'm getting to feed that curiosity in a way that very fortunately um, is helping so many people through the the trials and tribulations that they're facing in their lives. And so I'm, I feel grateful to have this opportunity. So I think you first came to my attention because the Washington Post did a story based on your commencement talk. What do you think young people should think about as they face one of the biggest changes in their lives going from school out into the world? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful question. And I've been reflecting on this a lot because um, I was invited to give a TED Talk this year and I had to kind of synthesize my thinking on change and my my life's work in 10 minutes, right? And so I was trying <laughs> to figure out, okay, what are the most valuable pieces of wisdom that I can share with people? And I think the biggest thing that I would want to share with young people navigating a change that they're intimidated by, that they're scared of, is that we are not the same people on the other side of change. So when we anticipate what a change will be like. We imagine what our present day selves will be like in that new situation, right? That's what comes to mind. Okay, my current abilities, my current perspectives, my current uh, preferences, that it's just going to be me, Maya, current day Maya, jumping through this magic mirror, navigating this big change. But what that fails to appreciate is that the changes we experience in our lives can change us internally in really powerful ways. And I've seen that transformation in every guest that I've talked to on A Slight Change of Plans, where we become different people on the other side of change. And there's hope in that message because you can become a more resilient person. You can have a different life perspective on the other side of change that actually empowers you. You can cultivate a new set of abilities that you didn't even think you were capable of. So I, I interviewed one um, woman on the show, Christine Ha. She went permanently blind in her early 20s as the result of a... Um, autoimmune condition and went on to win Master Chef on, on TV and is now this world-renowned blind chef. And she totally surpassed her expectations of what was possible as someone without sight and taught herself how to cook in the kitchen without sight. And she said she could never have imagined that that would have been possible for her. Um, and so I, I think what we can do in these moments is just hold on to the fact that what we see in front of us right now, our current understanding of self, is actually quite limited. It's based on the narrow set of experiences we've happened to endure over the course mm. of our lives, the data points we've collected. We think, Alan, because we have a first-person perspective on ourselves, that we have a fully comprehensive, you know, understanding of who we are and what we're capable of. Actually, it's very imperfect. It's because we haven't been through the experiences we're facing when we go through the change. Exactly. 
And so I think there's, again, hope and optimism in that message because we might really surprise ourselves. I've surprised myself um, many, many times. And I'll give you, you know, one quick example of this, which is, you know, I mentioned the miscarriage in 2020. Um, Our surrogate was actually pregnant with identical twin girls. um, And uh, we were so excited about that. This was uh, at the end of 2021. And then she miscarried. And my husband and I were, again, totally devastated, didn't expect this to happen again. And what this show has taught me is that maybe I can loosen my identity on motherhood a little bit, you know? Like, that's been a guiding force for me. And obviously, there's lots of ways to have a family, and we're continuing to explore all those ways. But I think it's been a, it's been a really helpful reminder to me that I can ask that same question I asked with the violin, which is, what is it that I was seeking from motherhood? And can I find that elsewhere in my role as an aunt and mentoring other kids and fostering? Like, are there other ways to do that? And that's been very liberating for me to kind of free myself from this identity. And that's something I learned from my guests. Like, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have had the maturity um, to even entertain that possibility had it not been for the lessons that I've learned on the show. And so I am a different person on the other side of change. I'm seeing myself differently um, than I ever thought I could. Well, it's liberating to hear you describe what you've gone through and how you how you achieve the m- mental stance to be able to do it. I wish we could talk longer, but our time is running out. It's making me healthier the longer we talk. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I love it. But before we before we close, we always end every show with seven quick questions. Okay. Okay. Number one, what do you wish you really understood? Hmm. How to effectively change someone's mind. Uh, it's, it's a really intractable problem. We have some inroads into understanding what's involved in changing minds, but that is one of those really hard nuts to crack. Well, that leads into question number two. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Mm. Well, the key thing, and this is what we learned from cognitive science, is you can tell someone their facts are wrong, but they probably won't change their minds. And that's because we develop our beliefs about the world due to much more than facts. We develop our beliefs about the world based on our group membership, right? Based on um, the tribes that we're part of. And so you have to really ask the question, what is at the heart of why this person believes in X, Y, or Z before you try to unlock change? What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> oh, that's a really good one. Um, well, I'll tell you the... I don't know if it's the strangest, but I'll tell you the question I'm unable to answer. So Maya, what's happening in the brain when we experience change? And I can't answer that. Unfortunately, it's a too high level question for me to answer. (laughs) Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Well, you'll have to tell me how you navigated this interview. (laughs) (laughs) So I think making people feel like they're really being heard is one way to sort of truncate the compulsive Ah, That's very practical advice. That's very interesting. So if you repeat back to them what you've just heard in your own words, that can signal to them that you're really attentive, you're with them. They They don't have to try too hard to get their message across. You're with them. That's what I try to do. Good. Let's say you're sitting next to someone at a dinner table who you've never met. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? Hmm. 
it's pretty common to ask people, so what do you do? Hmm. And I've always been kind of uninterested in the professional question. I usually am much more interested in their social life, the, the social fabric of their lives. So I'll typically ask about their families, or about where they grew up, about their friends, um, how they spend their free time. Like that tends to be where you really get at the, the core of who a person is. Okay, next to last question, and I'm really glad to be asking you this question, given the jobs and the positions you've invented and then filled. What gives you confidence? I think what gives me confidence are the endless acts of kindness that I see between people in my everyday life. It's it's easy if you're on the internet too much to forget how much genuine kindness and humanity there is in the world. But if you take a moment in your everyday life to just witness other people, to observe other people and their interactions, you will see so much love and humanity in those interactions. So I would urge people to just take a moment to take it all in. Great. Last question. You may have answered this already. What book changed your life? I already shared the Steven Pinker book, which got me interested in cognitive science. But Um, The book Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, which details how you can apply insights from behavioral science to improving your life, um, was really powerful to see that examples of that translation up close. And it's it's a really fun book to read for anyone um, who's either interested in policy changes or just interested in making little nudges and introducing nudges into their personal life. Well, that is probably going to be the next book I'll read. I hope it will change my life, too. You're just terrific. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. You put a skip in my step today. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Maya Shanker is the creator, executive producer, and host of the podcast A Slight Change of Plans. It won Apple's award as the best show of the year in 2021. Before that, she was a senior advisor in the Obama White House, where she founded and served as chair of the White House Behavioral Science Team. Her website is mayashanker.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Matthew Walker. He's the author of a best-selling book called Why We Sleep, and he's the host of the Matt Walker podcast. He's become the go-to expert on everything to do with sleep, from sleeping better to why we dream. You know, I often think of dream sleep as a Google search gone wrong. Let's say that, you know, I type into Google Alan Alder, and the first page is all of your incredible back catalog of of accomplishments. But then I go to page 20 and it's about a field hockey game in Utah. (laughs) And I think, hang on a second, what on earth is... But if I read it and I look, there's a very distant, very non-obvious association. When you start to collide things together that shouldn't normally go together, it sounds like the biological basis of creativity. And no wonder as a consequence, 
No one has ever told you, you know, Alan, you should really stay awake on a problem. Matthew Walker, sleeping on it every night. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Remember the Thai Cave Rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Expectations matter. What do you expect from an SUV? Versatility? A range of sizes built to fit your life? A range of exteriors that all invite stairs? Or being able to take control of more than just the wheel? Expectations matter, but exceeding them matters more. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel.